Hello and welcome to another podcast in a series from Sadie Records. I'm Steve Robinson, and every time Sadie comes out with a new release, we do a podcast and we talk to the artists involved. And in this case, the new release is called J.S. Bach, The Sonatas for Violin and Harpsichord, featuring Rachel Barton Pine Violin and Jory Vinicor Harpsichord. And we have Rachel and Jory with us, along with the producer, Jim Ginsburg. Rachel, welcome. Great to be here. Jory, good to have Delighted you here. Delighted to be here, Steve. Always a pleasure. So this is a wonderful album that I've had a chance to listen to a couple of times in the past couple of days since I got it at our meeting last week. First of all, how did the two of you first meet and begin playing? I think it's been more than just a few months that you've known each other. Just about. We both grew up as students at the Music Institute of Chicago. Didn't cross paths no. during those years, but reconnected in, oh gosh, like 20 years ago. Uh, about and, 20 years ago. Yeah. And growing up in Chicago, I'm a bit older than Rachel, and Rachel was, I'm sorry, but our little Chicago superstar, <laughs> and I admired her. My father, who was an amateur violinist, adored Rachel, so we finally met up, as Rachel said, about 20 years ago, did a little Bach reading at a friend's house, and exactly. we met. Yeah, so Jory was unfortunately living in Europe, where he was building his brilliant career <laughs> on that side of the ocean, and he would pop back in to the U.S. from time to time and we would get together and read sonatas and hang out. And Yes. I loved playing with Jory, but I also loved Jory's recordings, particularly of the Goldberg variations. And I heard him perform the Goldbergs at Preston Bradley, our beautiful hall here in Chicago. And I just thought, if I ever record the Bach keyboard sonatas with violin, Jory is my number one choice for who I want to do it with. Thank and, you, Rachel. Uh, <laughs> luckily, he agreed. So the album is a dream come true. I want to ask you a question in a moment about what it's like to play with someone you've known for so long, but I'm going to save that just for one second. How did the idea for the album come about? And I want to ask that in the context of this. There are innumerable recordings of this repertoire. Not, not as many as you would think, certainly not as compared to the solo sonatas and partitas. You know, over the years, there's been a few. So what prompted you to want to add another recording to this catalog? Well, Rachel and I, again, had a few read-throughs of this repertoire, which is the most thrilling and challenging music to play for this combination of instruments, frankly. And I run a little series in Milwaukee, Great Lakes Baroque. We invited Rachel two years ago now. That was a pretty smashing success. And I think the idea to do the recording came from you and from Jim. But after that, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So you have to realize all these years we've been getting together and playing together, we had never actually performed together. And after we performed together, it was just such an obvious thing and just very organic to just say, well, now we have to record together. This went so well. <laughs> yeah. And we performed for my series for Indianapolis Baroque. And I adored it. I don't want to speak for Rachel, but it was just such an extraordinary experience for both of us. So that's what it is. Yeah, well, that's the thing I love about playing with Jory is, you know, music that I've explored for countless hours and I'm absolutely familiar with. Somehow in that moment of playing it together, especially in live performance, but also in the inspiration of when the mics are on in your recording, it just feels so fresh and flexible and nuances are continually occurring. You can have good players where everything is kind of like planned out, but to have that spontaneity going on is something extra special. Yes. You've had a long-time friendship and maybe not recorded together, but have performed. So I wanted to ask you this question. Let's say that you walked into the studio for this recording and you had never met each other, never played, didn't know each other. How would that recording differ from the one we have here? 
that's so difficult to say because, of course, sometimes two people do just hit it off. At the same time, with the pressure of the microphones, I think that being in the moment as friends, having a full trust in each other, not just admiration for the talent, that's one thing. I've gone into a studio with well-known artists, and you can absolutely admire what they're capable of doing. I can think of several cases, even being a member of an orchestra, but yet having that bond of personal friendship, personal trust, allows a very different communication once those mics are running, and certainly a different level of spontaneity. Yeah, well, of course it would have been good, but it's just like people talk about you have to practice improvisation. Obviously, in this kind of music, it's not the figured bass where I'm not ornamenting my melody lines, Jory's not inventing his right hand. Everything is fully written out by Bach, but there's that element of interpretative improvisation. And so just like great improvisers talk about practicing improvisation where they get together with their colleagues and they jam or they play a certain solo over and over, different every time, but that way then in that moment, the best ideas blossom and come out. The better prepared you are, of course, the better it's going to be. And I should say in this mix, it's not just the artist, but also in terms of trust, the producer is key. (laughs) And I have to be able to focus on the music I'm making and not be cataloging, oh, I missed that note in bar five and that I had a little bit of a tone thing in bar seven and be keeping a list in my head to go back and fix stuff because then I couldn't be giving my full attention Mm -hmm. to what I'm doing in that moment. But I also have to trust the producer that if the producer says, actually, that measure was fine, that I'm like, okay, I thought maybe it wasn't, but if they say it is, then it is. Because or, or, otherwise... it was, or it was fine two takes ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you noticed this last one where it wasn't fine, but by the way, actually you got it just fine a couple times ago when you weren't even noticing. Because if you start to second guess everything your producer oh, is telling impossible. you, then you're going to bog things down time-wise. You're going to stress everybody out. The playing is going to start to deteriorate. <laughs> you're blocked after a very, very, very short period of time. And it's also a question of the producer pacing the artists. And I've had producers who had excellent ears, whose ears I trusted, who just didn't somehow have as much of a personality rapport with me. Because it's a difficult thing. You're playing your heart out. And instead of applause, the producer goes, okay, well, that was pretty good. (laughs) And then you're like, ah, like keep your spirits up in the face of that. And I thought Jim was wonderful with this. (laughs) Exactly. I I, I mean, I, I I won't name names, and this was anyway very far away. But I think of one producer who just drove a singer to literal tears with that because we require the support of the producer, too. Absolutely. It's, it's a, a to pays to compliment. That's a little bit trite, but really to keep on encouraging, don't you? Yeah, think? well they're like a coach, a yes. critic, a therapist, all rolled into one. <laughs> does Jim, he, Jim did, does that wonderful. Did he get lunch too? <laughs> no, no. I think this is really to be criticized. Next time Jim has to get lunch. He did not get lunch. Which no. is difficult with evening sessions. It is, yes. <laughs> well, I want to ask you a question about you use the word spontaneity, but first let's hear a selection of music. Jim, tell us what first turn you've chosen. Well, I thought it'd be nice to start with a nice burst of A major. This is the final moment, the fourth moment of the second sonata on the album, the sonata in A major BWV 1015. It's also the music for one of the two video trailers we've put out about this album, which people can check out at sadierecords.org. That trailer actually is where Rachel and Jory talk about being friends playing the music together, and you really get that sense of friendship and just unadulterated joy in this track.
That was the last movement of the sonata in A major of J.S. Bach, Mark Presto, and performed on this new CD recording by Rachel Barton Pine Violin and Joey Vinicor Harpsichord from their new album, J.S. Bach, the Sonatas for Violin and Harpsichord. And we're delighted to have Jory and uh, Rachel and the producer, Jim Ginsburg, in the studio with us. Rachel, uh, before we heard that piece, you talked about spontaneity and improvisation. We think of this, of course, in jazz and other forms of music where improvisation is the key. You don't think of it so much in Bach. So how did improvisation work itself into the studio session? I know you didn't improvise. You played the notes on the page. Why did you use that word? How did that come into the session? Well, it all has to do with how you play the notes. Certainly going all the way back to the Baroque era, the composers left a lot more to the individuality of the performers. There were very few dynamic markings on the page, not a lot in terms of dictated articulations, etc. So there are lots of decisions to be made, but those decisions not only have to be explored and experimented with and talked about and thought out, but sometimes they can be very extemporaneous and playing off of each other. When I'm playing with a string quartet, I don't so much think of it as a jam session, but when I'm playing with an early music ensemble, I very much feel like I'm jamming, even if it's an ensemble of two. (laughs) There's a sense of listening with great attention. I suppose I feel all classical music has this element, whether we're speaking just of questions of tempi and dynamics or even the emotional characteristics or affects, this can change. I don't know that I would be inclined to use the word improvisation all the same. And even, frankly, playing basso continuo as I've done, I'm cautious about how I approach improvisation because I do think that there is, with almost all music over this uh, two-century period, more or less a right way and not. So these are just such small gradations of emotion and character and dynamic and articulation. So there is an element of improvisation, but I think more importantly is what Rachel already said, that element of spontaneity, how you approach the scores, how you always feel fresh while you approach them. All the subtleties and nuances. Yeah. Were there moments in the session, Jim, do you remember where maybe they stopped and said, let's try it a different way? Well, sometimes the tempos took a little time settling on, and one thing was very helpful to me was having had a chance to hear some recordings of their live run-throughs, their live performances. They did some house con, at least one, right? One concert. Yeah, we did, you know, these various public concerts where we did a selection of the sonatas, but it's an almost overly hefty program to do all six in a single go, but we wanted to have our most recent thoughts on the subject for Jim to study before we entered the studio, so we actually schlepped a harpsichord over to my condo and (laughs) invited some friends and had a private soiree. It was pretty great. (laughs) It was super fun. It was chaotic, but it was fabulous. (laughs) I wasn't able to be there for that, but they made a recording, and I did listen to it in preparation for the sessions, and it was very helpful to me because in the sessions, sometimes they'd play a different tempo, and sometimes it'd be like, yeah, I like that better, but more often than not, I think the, the spontaneity of the live performance was where the tempo was more likely to be right, mm-hmm. so if they hit a significantly faster or slower tempo in the session, I would say, gee, I think I liked it better the way you played it at the house party. Maybe you should check the tempo. I think that really helped. Mm. Yeah, because honestly, you feel music the most when it's in front of an audience. Even if it's chamber music and you're feeling it with each other, just having those other humans in the room, there's just a emotional thing that happens that you can't fake. And so knowing how you play a piece in performance, you have to try to bring that with you to the studio. 
and having the producer help with that is just super useful. Let's talk a moment about the pieces themselves and in the context of a remark made by C.P.E. Bach, one of Bach's sons, who said that he thought these pieces were his father's finest compositions. And I think we have to put that in a little bit of context. He probably didn't know all of his father's works, probably didn't know the Passions, for example, probably didn't know the cello suites. Nevertheless, he thought very highly of these works. What, in your estimation, makes them so distinct in Bach's output? Gosh, well, one thing is they were genre-defining. Bach wrote cantatas, but so did people before him. But really, this was the first major set of concertante harpsichord works. In other words, both hands fully written out very Mm -hmm. often as at least two separate voices, like one would with a solo harpsichord piece, but then with the violin added with the chamber music element. This was really a new groundbreaking thing. Extraordinary novel. And this innovation, this so-called innovation, which somehow seems so surprising when we analyze this today, does seem unique to the Bach family. So around the beginning of the 1730s, we have these sonatas, Bach sonatas for viola da gamba with harpsichord, for flute with harpsichord, the concerti. Again, the idea of having a written-out harpsichord with other instruments was very new. So composers like Rameau followed, but by, I think he was in 1741, that he did the pièce de clavecin concert. So this is already a great, great novelty. Probably CP admired these works as real trio sonatas, what is usually three equal polyphonic voices, like the organ trio sonatas. I think it's worthwhile pointing out that many of the movements, that's not truly the case. It's more that the harpsichord will have four or even five voices <laughs> or a very different type of accompaniment. I think the first movement of the E major yeah. particularly, uh, where the harpsichord has this very chorale-like accompaniment with the violin just soaring over it. But that's another impressive element, that yeah. the whole cycle was not just one thing. Of course. That he took these two instruments and he did a whole slew of stuff with them. And frequently exploiting the various expressive or tonal qualities of each of the instruments and not always trying to match them up as equal partners. Yeah, and of course that's one of the reasons that I chose to record this album on my Baroque violin with the gut strings and the 18th century setup as opposed to my recent album of the solo unaccompanied violins, sonatas and partitas that I chose to do in the way that I most frequently perform it just because of circumstances, which is on my modernized violin. People, of course, do play these sonatas with harpsichord on modern violin. Awfully difficult, awfully difficult. I mean, I've been in that situation not to play the whole set, But, Rachel, I hope you would agree and not take offense, but even for an extremely fine violinist on the modern metal strings, attempting to balance out the two instruments as a chamber duo, not having the violin so prominent that it's merely accompanied by a sort of a tinkling tinkling or, (laughs) or worse yet, buzzing instrument in the background, where on the gut strings, although I still feel that the violin frequently dominates the texture, at the same time, articulations start to match up wonderfully. The tonal warmth matches up wonderfully. Oh, absolutely. There's no comparison, which just shows you that not every innovation is improvement. And sometimes the old style violin is going to work a lot better for what you need. Yes. (laughs) Well, speaking of your violin, it's a 1770 
tell me if I'm pronouncing it right, Galliano? Yes. And it says in the notes that it is unaltered. Most old violins are altered in many ways, right? Yeah, they've undergone their full-fledged gender change operation by this point. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, they cut off their necks and they put the longer ones at a steeper angle and they open up their tops and they rearrange their innards and the whole nine yards. And sometimes you can Baroque one back, but of course you don't have that original neck, so you have to put a Baroque style neck on it and basically hope it comes out relatively untraumatized at the other end. So to have one that's actually never had any surgeries that is of this quality and in this type of pristine condition, to have an instrument like that that I was actually able to acquire as opposed to just being a rare example sitting in a museum that was just incredibly lucky, one of the luckiest things that's happened in my entire life. So the violin being unaltered gives us a sense of what this music might have sounded like in the day. The violin was built just not many years after Bach's death, so it's almost contemporary with him. It offers a certain mood or character. The violin can give something unique to it. How would you define the character of these pieces and the mood of these pieces, and can you single out one cut that might illustrate that? So, for example, the Largo from the BWB 1017, how would you define this character? Yeah, well, it's interesting. He has three sonatas in major and three in minor, but each of them has their own unique personality. Some are brighter. The E major is more extroverted. The A major is more cheerful and perky. The G major is almost orchestral in feeling. The F minor is very intimate and murky. The C minor, as one would expect with that key, say it's dark and brooding. Yeah, brooding is a very good descriptor on that. And we'll talk a bit after this, Joy, about your instrument because that's also quite unique and adds, obviously, a very important part to the mix. I thought we might hear next as a contrast to the A major we heard earlier, the, Rachel put it, brooding opening largo to the C minor sonata, which I chose simply because I think it's one of the most beautiful movements in the entire set. Oh, yes.
That was the opening movement, the Largo, from the Sonata in C minor, BWV 1017 of J.S. Bach, performed by Rachel Barton Pine Violin and Joy Vinicor Harpsichord, and it's from their new CD release called J.S. Bach, the Sonatas for Violin and Harpsichord, and it's a brand new release, and you're listening to a podcast about this recording. CD Records can be found online at cdrecords.org, and that's C-E-D-I-L-L-E, cdrecords.org, where you can see the whole catalog. How many albums on there, Jim, now? We're getting close to 180 on the main line, as well as some mid-price albums and some budget compilations as well. Actually, I should mention that this particular album is Jory's debut for the CD label with other projects planned. Other projects planned? How should I say? In full progression at this very moment. Yeah, (laughs) and of course, this this is my, I don't even know, umpteenth (laughs) recording for CD. I've had a long and fruitful relationship with the label, but it's always wonderful to bring another amazing artist into the fold. Well, I didn't realize uh, this was your first CD recording. It is indeed. The notes here say this is your harpsichord's recording debut. It I is thought, indeed. I thought maybe that was the first time. This harpsichord has been on CD, but no, it's... The harpsichord <laughs> and its owner. <laughs> but actually, it's the first time your harpsichord has appeared on any album. That is exactly correct. Tell yeah. us a bit about the instrument, Jory. It was constructed by Tony Chinnery mm-hmm. in 2012, but it's modeled after... Another harpsichord from 1769. Tell us about that. So this is an instrument in the French style modeled after Tascan, after an instrument which is in the collection in Edinburgh. And this was made for me, as you said, in 2012 by Tony Chinnery, a wonderful British instrument builder who's been living near Florence for most of his professional life. When I decided to return to Chicago at the end of 2013, I quickly missed having my instrument, but it is not the easiest feat in the world to ship a harpsichord from France to the States. So the harpsichord had a bit of a peregrination and went back to the builder in Italy, then had to be shipped back to France so that I could send it from France as a French citizen, uh, (laughs) treating it as a household effect, and it finally arrived in the USA one year ago. So it came by boat? No, 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 it flew. And it arrived in one piece? It arrived wonderfully. (laughs) So if anybody wants uh, moving recommendations, I'll go into my files, but it it (laughs) went very, very well indeed. Now, when a harpsichord is modeled after an instrument, so this is modeled after the 1769, what does the, the maker do? Does he go in and, yes, and measure blues. everything and look at exactly how it was constructed? Absolutely. Try to, how can you use the same materials 300 years later? A question perhaps best addressed to specialists. Nonetheless, a number of the most famous instruments, harpsichords, I'm sure this is the same for violins, there are blueprints which exist. So very, very detailed. Blueprints from the original? In very rare cases, I think there are papers from original builders. In certain cases, when an instrument is rebuilt or restored, those persons who are restoring that instrument keep extremely detailed records. So that could be, uh, of course, all measurements, including the width of soundboards, all very, very specific uh, details, what materials are used. So how does one find those same materials? Well, the best instrument builders, harpsichord, violin, etc., keep aged wood around. So uh, Tony has a tremendous stockyard of approximately 300-ish year old wood. So this has already been aged and seasoned and ready to be transformed into instruments. So what listeners might find interesting, I do, 
is that your harpsichord is modeled after one made in 1769, and yours was mm-hmm. made in 1770, so they're soulmates. They're, they're basically soulmates. And <laughs> my instrument, again, in the French style, so some hallmarks of that uh, as compared to a typical German instrument, a, a real richness of sound, which occasionally is privileged over, say, the clarity. Most German instruments are a little shallower in sound, but are clearly designed for polyphonic music. I love playing Bach on my instrument, but this is not the most typical, but I still feel that the richness of the sound was ideal, and particularly playing with Rachel, of course. And of course, there is a double keyboard. You know, you'll hear, as you're listening to the album, a lot of tonal differences depending on whether Jory's playing on the top keyboard or the bottom keyboard. Yes, of or course. Sometimes even all stops out like a couple of the movements in the last sonata. Well, I mean, again, using the resources of the instrument, these at least are extremely similar, whether we compare a late Baroque French instrument or an instrument in Germany at Bach's time. The same setup of stops and gadgets and so forth. Shall we listen, Jim, to another selection? Well, since the last sonata was mentioned, how about another burst of joy? This is the opening movement of the G major sonata, BWV 1019. Thank you. 
That was a performance of the first movement of the Sonata in G Major, BWV 1019 by J.S. Bach, marked Allegro, and performed by Rachel Barton Pine Violin and Jory Vinicor Harpsichord from their new CD recording, J.S. Bach, the Sonatas for Violin and Harpsichord. I forgot to mention this is a two-CD set. It took two CDs to get these seven wonderful performances. But at a single-disc price. <laughs> that was Jim Ginsburg, and you should know that you can purchase this album by going to CD's website. One way to purchase it at cdrecords.org. C e d i l l e, records.org. My guests are the two artists on the album, Rachel and Jory. You both have an extensive history, to say the least, with the music of Bach. How has your interpretation and approach to Bach's music changed over the years, if it has? Goodness, it's such a difficult question, I, I suppose, of the many, 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 many musicians on this earth today who play Bach. I think so many of us change with the years, and I'm not even sure I could answer that, uh, how we try to get more deeply into Bach's compositions, the counterpoint, and at the same time, just appreciating the music on its primary level as joyous or sad, etc., and just still responding to the emotion of the music. Rachel, what do you think? Yeah, well, obviously, when I first started playing Bach as a little girl, I was playing in a more, or a less defined Baroque way, so to speak. It was all violin music was violin music, and then I became aware of historic periods and stylistic differences and all of that in my teenage years, and that started to impact whether I was playing impressionistic music or 20th century music or 18th century music. But I think the interesting thing about Bach, normally when I'm studying, especially to prepare for recording, but also to prepare for performance, I will often listen to other artists' renditions of repertoire. And I'll listen on a macro level for what are their overall moods and tempi and things. I'll listen on a micro level for exactly what fingerings are they using or exactly what are their nuances of timing. I find that it doesn't do me any good to listen to anybody else's Bach. I can listen to other people's Bach for pleasure, but not for study, because somehow the best thing that I can do for improving my Bach continually is to keep looking at the score, thinking about things, and then also just play it and just feel it and get in touch as deeply as possible, not only with understanding the construction of the music, which directly impacts interpretation, but also getting in touch with how I personally feel about this music, because I feel like more than any other repertoire, it has to be guided in the end by my feelings and not by my thoughts. Uh, it's so funny because I recorded the unaccompanied Bach, and then right after that I recorded the Paganini Caprices, also very landmark cycle of works for violin alone. And that I thought, oh, am I just not listening to other people anymore when preparing for albums? What's going on here? Well, Paganini Caprices, I was right back to listening to other people, and it did me a lot of good. So it wasn't that that was no longer what I was doing. It was just that I discovered that that didn't help me for Bach. But it's very interesting because I feel like Bach is where each artist can be the most individual. And we're not even talking about like an analytical of, okay, this person did this bowing and this fingering and this phrase shape. But somehow this music just gets to the core of who you are as a person. And I can only be me. And then the goal is to be the most me possible, if that makes any sense. 
It does to me. I listened with a, a lot of uh, thought to what Rachel said. I find myself for any recording, I truly don't want to hear other interpretations within any uh, near time frame of recording. I just want to try to get as deeply as possible into the music from my own personal standpoint. Certainly, I saw performing Bach as a little kid on the piano differences of interpretation that one can find from the famous pianists who play Bach, whether we're speaking Sviatoslav Richter and Gould and Turek, and then going to harpsichord. I mean, we have such wild, wild differences of interpretation, perhaps more than we see even in Mozart, Beethoven, and so forth. That could be uh, debatable. And yet I try to approach the music not only uh, looking at Bach as an individual composer, but at least looking at what surrounded him, looking at Bach's own influences of the music he loved. Of course, Bach was extremely inspired by the French harpsichordists of his day and just before, and also very influenced by the German school of composers, Buxtehude, very famously. I think our overall general culture, our general knowledge of the music which surrounds Bach also helps us greatly in how we approach performing his works. Well, thank you for saying that, and that's actually so important. Students are constantly asking for advice about Bach and coachings on Bach and so on, and I'm like, well, have you ever actually played any French Baroque music? Have you ever played any German music that preceded Bach? Are you at all familiar with what led to Bach or the world in which Bach lived and Bach's influences? And without that information without that experience. You can't just interpret Bach in a vacuum. No, no. You truly can't and you shouldn't. The period instrument or historically informed performance movement, was that fully established by the time you both started no. you know, your own Bach interpretations or was there an evolution that you went through along with that movement? Yeah, when I came across the concept of ornamentation at age 14, and sought out a specialist to start coaching me in historically informed interpretation, there wasn't another teenager in the entire city of Chicago doing this. Oh, no. I was absolutely isolated. And in fact, when I was in my early 20s, and actually my first record for CD, I'd released romantic stuff prior to that, but my first CD recording was Handel Sonatas. And I was invited to perform for a pretty prestigious New York series that was having a Handel occasion. And my New York management told me not to, to take the gig because if I was known as somebody who played Baroque music well, people might question whether I played Brahms and Tchaikovsky well. And so things were still at that point. I'm very happy to see how the world has evolved and we've got a lot farther to go. I recently convinced Shar Music, the largest supplier of string instrument supplies, to start carrying budget-priced snakewood Baroque bows. So now there's Ooh. no excuse. Every student, every teacher, every professional can now own their very own Baroque bow to use with their modern instrument, which brings you more than halfway there. And this just happened a couple months ago. This is and wonderful. Breaking news. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot more work yet to be done. I had a wonderful conversation with one of uh, Rachel's very, very fine colleagues, Cynthia Roberts, violinist, who surprised me greatly by speaking of her studies with Joseph Silverstein. Of but I just imagined Silverstein as a great, great violinist, but of the very old school. I had mm -hmm. no idea that he was trucking around Baroque bows and doing his best to really delve greatly into Baroque fingerings on the violin and phrasings and bowings and so forth. So 
to answer Jim's question, I think there was a vogue, that's probably more the word, to move us towards some historically informed practice. That's a sort of a heavily charged subject. But I think of myself also as a teenager in Chicago, and I'm considerably older than Rachel, but I was fascinated by the harpsichord even as a young teenager, and there was simply no possible way here in the city of finding a good instrument and somebody to play it. So I never, never, never saw a harpsichord up close and personal before the age of 18 when I went off to college. And now my daughter is six, and she's been using a Baroque bow since she was four. <laughs> so we can question certain things in our world. Moving um, along. You know, and climate change and all of these things. But I think in terms of historically informed performance, things are improving. They are improving, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I think all six-year-olds should have a Baroque bow. I mean, you know. Well, so do I, and yeah. I'm actually presenting at some national conferences on that very topic soon. <laughs> Now, before we get into this next and last piece, which we'll talk about too, it's marked BWV 1019A. I want to talk about the notion that you talk about in the notes about how this is kind of a trio in that the right hand of the harpsichord, is it fair to say, can, can be thought of as in a duet with the violin, with the left no. hand? <laughs> I would not put it this way. A trio implies three equal voices. So we are speaking about three polyphonic voices. That is the violin, the harpsichord's right hand, the harpsichord's left hand. And sometimes, this again, this is complex music, the left hand can, of course, play a bass role. In other words, uh, more a supportive role. But very, very frequently in each of the six sonatas, there are many, many times that the left hand is an absolutely full polyphonic partner. Yeah. Fugal material will go between these three voices. So in the purely polyphonic works, and Rachel, I don't know if you've gone through them piece by piece, but some of the works are really genuinely three-part pieces. Actually, yes, I did exactly that because <laughs> violinists always have the disadvantage of having only the violin part in front mm. of us. It's like seeing only your lines of a play. You yeah. Know, yeah, like yeah, what's yeah. really going on. So I actually have my own system of little symbols and things, and I would identify different bits of musical material and then indicate when somebody other than me had these bits to make sure that I'm aware of balance and of who's more important than who at any given moment in time. But so again, Steve, we are really speaking in many of the instances of full three-part counterpoint. And by the time we move a little beyond Bach's keyboard sonatas with violin obligato, which is how they're generally described, even Mozart, the piano can somewhat dominate the texture, although it's a little bit funny now to think of these as piano sonatas with Violin. Piano with a violin. <laughs> and, but this is frequently how these works were published at the time. But I do think by the time we get to Mozart and beyond, we think of the two entities in dialogue. Would you agree with that at all? Absolutely. And then it's not as important to think of the piano as left hand and right hand as piano solo, violin solo, and they join together. And I think this had something to do with the fact that this was evolving from the keyboard part being just the left hand. Of course. And the right hand doing harmonic and rhythmic filler that enhanced the music and of so course. on. Rather than kind of smushing them together, it makes sense for <laughs> there to be this idea of them being separate entities, I suppose. Well, and again, I think Bach the Baroque time, so counterpoint is so terribly important. But that's more of the answer to this, Steve. Although some of the movements, again, the harpsichord might play a much more harmonic role with a very cantabile violin solo, I think, again, first move to the major, first yeah. move to yeah. the minor. Now, interestingly, in this whole cycle, the violin 
is never polyphonic to any great degree. And certainly not even anything approaching what it does in the unaccompanied works for violin. And there's one piece that I also... No? Well, there's some double stops and things, but it's not really multiple full-fledged voices going And it's fairly rare in these six pieces. And there's some implied variolage stuff, that sort of thing, but not as explicit as in his unaccompanied works. And actually, he has one piece that I recorded on CD Records with my trio, a fairly substantial standalone fugue. And in that fugue, of course, the violinist does have multiple voices, but the keyboard part, or the continual part, I should say, which would normally be played on a keyboard and probably also a bowed bass, maybe even a plucky thing joining in, that part is just a bass line with chord numbers. Mm -hmm. So he never does write anything for multiple voices in the keyboard and multiple voices in the violin. That would have been really over the top. (laughs) It's worth pointing out, so it's belaboring the point that Steve made. In these six sonatas, there is not one genuine figure in the bass part, even when the harpsichord's left hand is alone. Yeah, that was some decisions we had to make. Normally, if you see a Baroque harpsichord part and there's a left hand only, you just presume that you're supposed to add some stuff in the right hand. Well, to harmonize Um, in general. Yes, but occasionally we felt quite strongly that the texture was such that the right hand voice simply hadn't entered yet and that we should leave it as the two voices or one voice or whatever it was, with the violin or without the violin, and not have the right hand do anything extra. This is absolutely the case, and I would even equate that to certain solo keyboard works of Bach where the left hand itself might be empty, as it were, for a time. So, yeah, there are no figures in this music at all, except for the team. Yeah, and that being (laughs) said, you did occasionally add (laughs) figures, whatever, (laughs) because somebody that's been living with figured bass for as long as you can figure out what the figure, no (laughs) pun intended. (laughs) And, and And that's a subjective decision at times. Can we hear much of what we've been talking about in this last selection that we've chosen for this podcast? The Cantabile in G major, this is a separate piece. This is actually a seventh piece. A discarded movement. Bach actually went through many iterations of his final sonata trying to figure out exactly which movements and in what order Mm. and ultimately hit upon this unusual five-movement scheme. And it's a very unusual sonata instead of the slow, fast, slow, fast of the other five. This is fast, fast, slow, harpsichord alone, fast, (laughs) and then slow, and then fast. And then, as I said, this discarded movement that was part of the sonata at one time, and Bach changed his mind. He clearly could and possibly have discarded it because of quality, because it's, in fact, one of the most glorious things you'll ever hear. Yes. It is long to the degree that I feel like maybe it didn't balance right in the sonata. Yeah. That must have been why he excised it. It's very, very developed. It's a phenomenal standalone piece, as Rachel and I have discovered together. And interesting enough, in this sonata, and I would even have to go back to the score, but this piece, there are indeed figures. So the harpsichord fluctuates back and forth between a real written-out dialogue with the violin, where the right hand, particularly mm-hmm. in this case, has similar melodic material to the violin. And at other times, the harpsichord has its figures and accompanies. And I'm left to my own devices and how I treat that. Well, let's listen then to this excised movement, one that Bach was considering putting in and then decided not to. It's wonderful that it's preserved, that it didn't get discarded. A lot of his music is lost. A lot of the cantatas are lost. 
Yes. But this piece isn't lost. It's the Cantabile in G major, and it's marked BWV 1019A, and we're going to conclude the music on this podcast with an excerpt from this Cantabile in G major. It's from a new CD release called J.S. Bach, the Sonatas for Violin and Harpsichord, and it's performed by Rachel Barton Pine and Jory Vinicourt.
That was a portion of the Cantabile in G major, BWV 1019A of J.S. Bach, and it concludes the music portion of this podcast about a new CD release, and it's called J.S. Bach, the Sonatas for Violin and Harpsichord. And I've had the pleasure of talking with the two artists on this new CD release, Rachel Barton Pine Violin and Joy Vinicor Harpsichord, and the producer, Jim Ginsberg. I wanted to conclude by just asking the two of you what's in your future uh, in the next couple of months or any big projects either together or, well, I know you all you always have projects separately, but anything together? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. we've got a couple of performances on the books for next season. We do. Uh, University of Chicago Presents, it's late April of 2019. Look this up, repertoire? Or? Uh, yes. 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 Yeah, Bach with uh, some solo violins, so I believe Rachel will perform the, the great solo partita in D minor. Mm-hmm. I'll perform the solo partita for harpsichord in D major on wow. this. We've got Peabody um, Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore in late February of next year. Mm-hmm. And if I have anything to do with it, a number of other things in the pipeline. So, yeah. Rachel, prepare to be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully more to come. And Rachel and Jory both have upcoming recordings yes. uh, on CD. Rachel has her Blues Dialogues, oh. uh, Music of Black Composers. That's in October, and you're releasing some sheet music with it, right? Yeah, well, it won't be the sheet music from the album, but it'll be on a similar topic. After 15 years of research, um, I'm finally ready to publish the first volume of my Music by Black Composers curriculum that my foundation has undertaken to help revive the history of black classical composers and participation in classical music and all of the stories and to diversify the repertoire of all music students. So I'm super, super excited about that. And we're in the midst of recording modern harpsichord concertos yes. <laughs> with Jory and the Chicago Philharmonic. Do you want to say a word about that? Oh, yes. <laughs> this, this has been thrilling, and I so appreciate that Jim, who is so calm and urbane, was insane enough to undertake this incredible project. <laughs> we have performed and recorded the Concerto for Amplified Harpsichord and Orchestra by Michael Nyman, famous English composer of the minimalist and even quasi-jazz school. So this was performed and recorded a year and a bit ago. And more recently, we recorded works by Walter Lee, who was a British composer who died just at the onset of the Second World War, a wonderful, wonderful composer, but who died before he was 35. So terrible loss. And we recorded also the concerto by Victor Kalabis, a Czech composer, too little known in this country, very well known in Eastern Europe. He was the husband of the harpsichordist Susanna Ruchitskova, who herself is a great, great subject, a survivor of three concentration camps, became one of the prominent Czech musicians, one of the leading pioneers of harpsichord performance in the 20th century. And the harpsichord concerto written by her husband is extraordinarily well-written idiomatically for the instrument. I think a very, very attractive piece. We finished that recording a couple of months ago. And now coming up, another real first, the concerto written by Ned Roram, Mm -hmm. a great living American composer. From Chicago. Ned is from Chicago, yeah. And the piece is signed in Chicago. I did not realize Ned was a Chicago native. The concerto was written in 1946, probably around the time Roram was in Paris. And there are many French influences, although the piece is so quintessentially Roram at the same time. And this is harpsichord, cornet, or solo trumpet, and small chamber ensemble. And we are undertaking this well in concert with members of the Chicago Philharmonic, including Barbara Hafner, the very well-known cellist here who's been a great friend of mine for some time. This happens May 5th 
And Jim, do you know the name of the hall, please? It's a yes. temple. Yes. So the concert on May 5th is at KM Israel in Hyde Park. And then three days later, we record also, in also Logan. in Hyde Park at the Logan Center. 2018? Yep. Yeah, oh, yeah. Coming up. Right around the time this am, podcast will be released. I am <laughs> practicing Roram hours a day. <laughs> will this be the first recording of the Roram? Technically, yes. There was a university student in Minnesota who brought this at least out of uh, the files about 10 years back. But that's not a professional uh, performance or recording. And I've not had any success in finding even a record of this, but I know it exists. Very exciting, Jory. And Rachel, uh, you probably could talk for the next few hours on your oh, yeah. projects and your hopes and your dreams. But those are very interesting, and we'll look forward to all of them. So w- what, in your view, makes the Chicago music scene special and different and exciting and I can answer that. I'm surrounded on my left and my right by two of the most special elements of that Chicago music scene. Rachel and Jim Ginsburg, people like this, make the music scene very special. Well, I think when you look at it objectively, Chicago has every bit as much going on in every realm of music as any of the world's most sophisticated cities. You know, we've got a great new music scene. We've got a great early music scene. We've got a world-class symphony and opera and got a, a deep bench of other opera companies. We've got just so much happening. But unlike a lot of those, especially in the U.S., like the East Coast cities, I feel like there is a supportive environment here in Chicago rather than a competitive one. That there's a warmth to the, the feeling among colleagues that you simply don't find in New York or some of these other places. That's what's kept me here all these years. And I would add, especially about the early music scene, it is greatly enriched, Jory, by your return to Chicago. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And that about wraps up our podcast for this edition of the Sadie Podcast. And we've been talking with Rachel Barton-Pine and Jory Vinicor and their wonderful new album on Sadie. It's actually a two-CD set called J.S. Bach, The Sonatas for Violin and Harpsichord. You can purchase all Sadie records, including this one, by going to their website, which is sadierecords.org, and that's C-E-D-I-L-L-E, records.org. We were joined by the president of Sadie and the producer of this album, Jim Ginsburg. Thank you all for talking with us about this terrific album.